You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The target date to begin draining the millions of gallons of fuel from underground tanks at Red Hill is mid-October. That's just two and a half months away. The Navy has been preparing by practicing drills in case something goes wrong and there's a spill at the underground facility. It's a potentially dangerous undertaking. And here to talk about the training of military personnel is HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden. And uh, they're calling this team fire watchers. And you actually got Mm -hmm. a chance to see the exercise up close. Yeah, good morning, Catherine. So I stopped by the training for the roving patrol. We were on Ford Island last week, and they're doing a mix of practical training, physical training, training in the classroom. It's a really interesting um, watch. And eventually, when their job starts in October, they'll be working in two-person teams that will walk about a mile back and forth throughout their eight-hour shifts at the Red Hill facility. And they'll be checking for leaks, fires, and any type of emergency that could also be medical. And they're being trained for that now. And a lot of that training is very physical. Last week, I sat in on an advanced firefighting drill, and that was at Ford Island's Naval Submarine Training Center Pacific. And Navy Senior Chief Petty Officer Donovan Hatch is one of the instructors. This is the next generation firefighter trainer. So the one that I went through years ago was very basic in design. This is pretty new. It came out in about 2020. They built this facility, multi-level fire. It's, it's very accurate to what real life scenarios would be. And I've been in several fires on board submarines and to be able to have fire coming from a lot of different places is extremely accurate to how fire moves around and the heat, just feeling the amount of heat that hits your body, making you sweat, it really stresses you. Uh, So extremely, extremely realistic. Uh, And I think that's the real benefit of our trainer here is the realism that we can provide to the sailors and to the fleet and to the personnel at Red Hill as well. So they're training at the submarine facility because it mimics the enclosed spaces that they'll see at the Red Hill facility. Yeah, I, you know, I know uh, talking to people who have worked in that um, facility there, you know, they talked about how there used to be drills and how, you know, something goes wrong, the power goes out, the, mm-hmm. it's completely pitch dark. And you might be, let's say, on a ladder and you have no light. And so, uh, you know, being in those small spaces or or, or on your hands and knees crawling, it, it sounded really challenging. And a lot of what we talked about um, watching them train was that this is to make them comfortable and be able to react appropriately when there's a fire or if somebody if somebody happens to somebody. So a lot of it is um, very practical. And the training exercise I saw last week, it started off in a classroom for a brief. Then they moved to the submarine training facility. And there the trainees started a drill that simulated an enclosed fire. When the fire started, trainees put on their firefighting gear and in shifts, they squeezed through this two and a half foot door into the submarine space. We weren't allowed in there, but we, we could hear the noises. We could hear the fire. We could hear the different fire extinguishing chemical that they're using. And they're practicing with this uh, dry chemical fire suppressant. And that's what, the, what they'll have at Red Hill. And the training facility works to address fundamental firefighting skills. And at the Red Hill facility, it'll be a little different. So the similarities would be the space, the confinement, the different types of piping and, and electrical wiring going around. Uh, egress routes would be different. So your escape routes, your paths to escape. Um, the equipment that they're gonna use in the mountain is 
slightly different than what we have here in the training uh, scenario. So that is going to be one of the main differences. The equipment that they'll be wearing for uh, breathing protection and all that is the same. Right? They're going to have the same equipment. So very similar, very stressful environments that they're being put through to prepare them for pretty much any fire that they could encounter for the rest of their lives, not just hopefully never in Red Hill, uh, but for the rest of their lives, they're gonna carry this training forward. So this current group that's training is about 68 members, and they're a mix of Army Reservists as well as Hawaii National Guard members. Some of those training already have firefighting backgrounds, but for others, this is the first time they're doing some of these activities. And some of these volunteers um, include Airman Joshua Benigno. He's from Salt Lake, and he says his water wasn't affected by the November 2021 fuel leak, but he says the mission means a lot to him as a local resident, and Benigno has been training the last couple of weeks. Uh, here at the at the submarine firefighting training course, you know, we go through four to five scenarios a day, and they progressively get harder and harder because the military works in a crawl, walk, run approach, and I think that definitely helps because, you know, seeing how we react to the beginning kind of gives us a good base to be where if something were to happen, we would be in a good situation and we would have to be properly trained. And he admitted that the first time he started training, he was a little scared, um, but he's becoming less and less scared as the training progresses. And he describes one of these more advanced drills. The fire was pretty big because they'd come from different portions of the trainer. And sometimes there would be this thing called rollover where the gases at the top, at the ceiling would ignite spontaneously and a wall of fire would roll over over your heads and it'd be incredibly hot. So kind of during this training, they, you know, some of them had come out and they were sweaty. They started the training very early in the morning and they're going in and they're just working very hard to kind of get these fires under control. Um, they're training at the submarine facility now and then they'll move to an, an industrial training facility. Um, and this is in addition to going to Red Hill every day or every other day for site training. And if I recall, that training was supposed to last about a month or so, right? Mm -hmm. And they should be prepared um, for mid-October to get on the ground for these roving patrols. It's about eight-hour shifts that they'll be working in. And did they indicate whether all of these um, reservists and guard folks are from here locally, or did they have to bring anybody in from the mainland? Some of them are from Hawaii, including Joshua, but some of them are from the mainland. They... You know, they have a mix of training. You know, some of them are firefighters. Some of them aren't. Some of them, um, it, it was a wide range of ages as well. And then, uh, gosh, you know, I know that the exits uh, along the tunnel are varying degrees. You know, some are, are, are very short. Some, I think it's like, a you know, more than a, more than a mile. Uh, mm -hmm. So it, it's really kind of scary when you think if you need to get out, you, you want to find the, you know, the closest exit. I think it's the idea of these enclosed spaces, too. Like, you have these roving patrols, and they're an additional layer of protection in case something were to happen. Um, so they're looking at everything from pipes, the bends in the pipes, to just listening and being aware of the surroundings. Um, one of the first things that they're trained to do is to call the federal fire department um, so those are the proper first responders and they're being trained to get comfortable identifying something, 
going through the proper protocols to call for help and then assist those first responders in the response. Yeah, and then the system, the fire suppression system that they have in there now, that contains the PFAS. And I know the military Mm -hmm. said they want to get away from that. So then this uh, dry chemical suppression system, that's what they're using then instead. Yeah, yeah. It's called PKP extinguisher. Um, I just did a quick Google search and I saw that it was a dry chemical fire suppressant. But those are the type of extinguishers that they're putting throughout the Red Hill facility. I don't know if they're finished doing that. I would hope to ask a little bit later today to see if they've finished equipping the entire facility with that. Yeah, and I know that we've done stories with um, uh, Kinetics, the Kinetics contract, Mm -hmm. um, you know, terminating, ending, and then they've just hired Dawson to do it. And I believe that that has a, that company has a six month contract uh, specifically on this. So be interesting to see Mm -hmm. how this all plays out. But thank you very much. Thanks, Catherine. We've been talking to HBR Sabrina Bowden. Uh, You can read more on this issue and more of her stories on our website hawaiipublicradio.org. is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Ships have been traveling back and forth to Hawaii since the beginning, from the first double-hulled canoes to today's modern cruise ships. Today, we're taking a look at a boat of another kind. The shipping company Matson is a highly visible name in the industry and a common sight uh, throughout Hawaii on containers and ships. The company was founded by Swedish immigrant William Matson after he befriended wealthy Hawaii industrialist Klaus Spreckels. With financial backing from Spreckels, Matson launched his venture to deliver merchandise to the Hawaiian Islands. For decades, the company also ran passenger liners that ran from the U.S. West Coast to Hawaii and points beyond. Today, Matson is strictly a shipping and navigation service, an enterprise that kicked off with a delivery of plantation stores aboard a three-masted schooner. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking for the name of that ship. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. Pick up a reusable HBR tote bag if you're the first one to get it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. 
nayreadhawaii.com. Mark Sovereignty Restoration Day for the Hawaiian Kingdom when a British officer illegally seized control of the government for a time. Thomas Square is where the Hawaiian flag was raised once again. And July 31st is marked as the first national holiday proclaimed by King Kamehameha III. The state motto in this translation, the sovereignty of the kingdom continues because we are righteous, is inscribed on a wall at the park. Community groups held festivities there yesterday, and a highlight was the creation of a tea leaf lay. The goal was 250 feet to represent the size of one of the Red Hill fuel tanks. The effort was started months ago at a fuel uh, task force open house following the contamination of our drinking aquifer. Rebecca Garrison is a Sierra Club of Hawaii community organizer and member of the Shut Down Red Hill Coalition, who was on hand Sunday. She talks about how the tea leaf lay has become a symbol for clean water. Really is a call out, a kahea to the community, you know, that we wanted to have a, a, a visual representation of the 250-foot uh, Red Hill tanks located at Kapukaki. So the idea was that we would get started on that. So if we asked folks to bring tea leaf to that meeting, and we began by, you know, just deboning it. And then different members of the coalition, again, um, really the members that were super involved in this, Sierra Club Hawaii, Earth Justice, Wisdom Circle Oceania, and Trinity Methodist Church, took pieces of that of the, of the tea leaf back home and began freezing them. Then we asked folks to come back for La Ho'ihoe uh, Ea, to you know, really begin to think more about our our solidarity in this effort for sovereignty as folks who identify as settlers and folks who identify as Kanaka to really get us to think about the immensity of the violence of of this happening throughout Hawaii. But yesterday it was really it was really exciting because we uh, surpassed our our goal of 250 feet and we're now approaching 400 feet. So our new goal now is to recreate uh, the full size of one of those tanks so we can really have a, a really powerful vision of the immensity of, of those Red Hill tanks at the Cup of Coffee. Well, I wasn't sure if the plan was to uh, put the lay and have it drape the statue there of King Kamehameha III uh, at Thomas Square, but it sounds like you folks are going to take this on the road? Yeah, that's our new goal now. So, yeah, we're going to have a, a traveling uh, road show. We're, we're still coming up with ideas. We'd love to display this at different art installations. You know, we're thinking about where we might be able to plug this uh, uh, throughout Oahu, but also, you know, maybe on some of the neighboring islands as well. You know, we had a lot of, you know, a lot of families were donating lai from Hawaii Island, from Kauai. We, we want to call out the kahea, put out to the community, you know, thinking about how we might, what might be some um, fun and, you know, great ways to display this massive tea leaf lay. So one of our ideas is that uh, folks at the next community response initiative meeting, the CRY, is that folks would wear parts of this tea leaf, you know, to, to visualize our solidarity in not just the shutdown. Uh, of Red Hill, but also that the community broadly 
is against any repurposing of the tanks. Yes, and they are still going through that process to determine, you know, what happens next. But uh, as far as the efforts that you folks are taking to, you know, get support of, for protecting the water? Yes, you know, it's been, it's really exciting, you know, in terms of um, getting this tea leaf leg going, we, the Kapuna at Craig's side, you know, they've been really, really great supporters of this effort. They actually got the first 100 feet of the lay woven. So now we're just moving forward with that. But in terms of what we've got going on, the rest of what we can look forward to the rest of the month, actually, we have a really exciting screening of Dark Waters at Church of the Crossroads this Friday from 5 to 9. There's going to be a youth-led conversation afterwards. There's going to be free food and booth. Again, members of the Shutdown Red Hill Coalition will have different tables there. You can come and talk story with folks. And then from there, we'll be disseminating more information about um, other activities coming up uh, in August. What can you share about this film? Dark Waters is talking more about discussing PFAS contamination. It's through the lens of different folks on the continent. But as you know, that this is becoming uh, increasingly concerning, not just for Hawaii, but also throughout the world, right? So thinking about those forever chemicals, which they also call everywhere chemicals because they are just so prolific throughout the environment, right? And so the, the dark waters conversation is really looking at like DuPont and some of these more corporate players in terms of the, the creation of PFOS and how that's contaminated different farmlands and, and people. For us here in Hawaii, we're thinking it through the lens of um, militarized violence and, you know, all of the PFOS that is coming through that AFFF, that firefighting foam that was used up at Red Hill. So for us, we're really very concerned about the seepage of the PFOS into the aquifer and throughout the island, around, particularly around different military installations here on Oahu, but something that we should be cognizant of all military installations in Hawaii and other areas. You know, we have solidarity with different uh, community folks in Guahan and Okinawa and all of the many, many other places where there's military installations where this AFFF has just really wreaked havoc on local communities, particularly indigenous communities. And you folks have also uh, made an effort to reach out to the different neighborhood boards here on Oahu. Talk about that. Oh, yeah. This is a really exciting effort by the Shutdown Red Hill Coalition. This effort was actually began back in 2017 with Sierra Club. Uh, this woman, Jody, did an excellent job of going out and, you know, began really the Shutdown Red Hill Coalition resolution, which is a resolution to immediately fuel, immediately defuel and permanently decommission the entire Red Hill facility. So decommission, not just shut it down and reuse it for something else. But so this woman, Jody, she's, she got the first 11 neighborhood boards to sign on to this resolution. And since then, it's been a real, a real effort, uh, you know, led by women. So Heilani Sonata-Pale, she did a really amazing job moving this work into, um, an, into her neighborhood board, a neighborhood board she's associated with. And then Melody Aduha as well with the Democratic uh, Party caucus. She was also doing this effort for the last several years. And so a couple of years ago, this became one of our um, the Shutdown Red Hill Coalition's kind of long-term goals, because it's a little slow rolling, was to continue this effort and close out with the goal of getting the first ever island-wide supported resolution in the history of the neighborhood boards. So we're just two down. There's only two more to go. So we're really, really excited about this. We're looking to attend the next neighborhood board meetings, the two that still need to pass are Waianae 
and Wahiwa. So those are the ones that we're, we're looking to, um, you know, get on board with us and we're really excited about it. But yeah, so we'll let you know when that happens. <laughs> We'd love to invite the community to come down and celebrate us, celebrate with us. It's a really, really exciting effort. As far as then the plan going forward with the tea leaf, will you roll it out at the screening this weekend? That's a great idea. Yeah, <laughs> we will. We'll bring out, we'll bring out what we have and we can share it with folks and we can have, we can begin the visual. Um, it's really something beautiful to see it all just the way it's come together with different ohana and different organizations. We're still in the planning stages. We were just very overjoyed by all of the support yesterday. I, I, I didn't imagine we would get to nearly over half of one of the size of those of those Red Hill tanks, right? So we just have 300 more feet to go. But that's an excellent idea. At, might as well just put out the kahea now. If anyone wants to come to the, the dark water screening, please bring some tea leaf with you. It, 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 could, it doesn't have to be deboned. It can be just straight up. But if you'd like to debone it and put it in your freezer, I'll gladly take it and we can thread it into the rest of the lay as we go. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for all of your support um, at HPR and throughout the community. Uh, you know, this is a this is going to be a marathon, not a race. Okay. Ebbs and flows with how folks participate. You know, we just want to continue creating safe spaces okay. for youth, for women, for indigenous communities, for everyone really to talk about uh, what does safety and, you know, what does safety and uh, justice look like for all? You know, not just what the military thinks, but oh. what we think, what's good for us. That was Rebecca Garrison, Sierra Club community organizer and member of the Shutdown Red Hill Coalition, talking about the significance of a tea leaf lay that the community has created in an effort to protect our drinking water. classical music so much you want to share it with the community? Well, we're looking for a new part-time host for HPR2. Candidates should have a strong understanding of classical music, radio broadcasting, be comfortable with public speaking, and perform well under pressure. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Civil Beat has a story that ran this weekend looking at the potential impacts of the governor's emergency proclamation to speed up construction of 50,000 housing units in five years. Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today. Hi, Stuart. Hello, Catherine. So, you know, you did talk to the uh, governor's housing officer, Nani Maduros, and we had her on the show, you know, after the governor announced this proclamation. But you talked to a kind of a broad cross-section of people who are really concerned about what could happen. Yeah, we did. We, we talked to a number of stakeholders, um, including 
uh, a lawyer who works in this space, um, environmentalist. Uh, we also talked to builders. So we really tried to get a, a 360 degree, or at least partly 360 degree uh, perspective on it. And the short of it is, people just don't know if this is gonna solve the problem. Well, you know, the whole idea behind this was to do something bold, according to the governor, and cut through some of this red tape. And I know Medeiros has uh, likened it to taking a scalpel and just, you know, carving out or carving through some barriers as opposed to just a blanket exemption for everything. Yeah, that's right. Um, although it, it's some of the um, exemptions and some of the uh, laws that have been suspended are pretty broad. Um but, you know, getting to uh, Nani's point, initial point, is um, whether this really constitutes an emergency at all. And that's one of the arguments that Lance Collins, an environmental lawyer, we spent land use lawyer we spoke to, said he, you know, he's not convinced and he expects a legal challenge. You know, the purpose of the law um, that provides the governor um, emergency powers to suspend laws is really for a, an emergency that we think of like a natural disaster or say the pandemic. Uh, this, uh, Lance said, is something that's been around for a long time. Things might have gotten worse, but he said this is not an emergency. And if it is, then isn't anything. Now, the governor's argument is if you look at all the things that are going on, population decline, Native Hawaiian leaving the islands in numbers that have led to more Native Hawaiians living on the mainland than here, um, other, other things going on, you know, they, they say it is an emergency. So that's going to be one of the points. And again, a fundamental question is, can this uh, proclamation or declaration sus uh, su sustain legal challenges? And your article mentions a Zoom meeting, there were 150 people participating um, so was this after the proclamation was uh, signed? Yeah, this was after the proclamation on that Saturday. There were there were something like 150 people um, at the at the on the Zoom meeting. People are very uh, concerned about this. And again, um, another aspect of the proclamation is people declaration is people will have the opportunity to weigh in uh, there for any any project that. Um, tries to obtain these exemptions under the uh, declaration, uh, they have to have at least one public meeting, um, including something like a neighborhood board meeting or just a town hall, and they have to uh, give notice and allow for written testimony. Again, all of this should be public. So people who are opposed to these things should be able to um, uh, testify and you know, rally opposition. And I know Medeiros has said that, you know, the, the idea is to speed up the process and that, you know, you don't have to wait for quorum. If, if they can get the burial council to, you know, to talk about this and address this issue, that they don't have to wait for weeks on end before you get all these members together in one room. Yeah, that's that's an idea. So, again, the process for historic uh, preservation and, and things like burials is sped up. There's still a process. It's, it's faster. And again, it has to be, they have to make a decision within 60 days. The um, environmental review process, which people are familiar with because it's what often leads to the requirement of an environmental impact statement, which is quite lengthy, 
Um, that's also sped up, but they aren't completely eliminated. And I think that's what Medeiros is saying when she said they tried to take a scalpel to it. They, they these uh, statutes might be technically suspended, but in their place are um, abbreviated processes. Again, though, the big question is: Are is this going to be enough for developers to step up and actually build homes? that end up being priced lower. If you talk to them, and they've said for decades, the red tape is what causes us to not be able to build houses that are priced affordably, whatever that means. This is a way of saying, okay, here you go. This is an opportunity. Let's see if you can make it happen. And we talked to one of the builders, a couple of them, a couple of developers, and they said, we just don't know. We're still looking at it, and we're trying to figure out what it means to me, what, what it means to them. Is it, you know, it, it's still onerous enough that uh, they, there are things in place, and they need to figure out, okay, can we, can we make things happen in the one-year time frame that we have to submit applications? Yeah, well, we'll just have to watch this very closely. But thank you so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. You can read the story at civilbeat.org. HBR's Atherton Studio Concerts are back. Starting August 19th, join us in person in Honolulu for our Indie 808 Performance Series featuring Kaylana, The Mob, Evan Kay, and Kennedy Taylor in the Electric Pink. For tickets and more info, visit hbrtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. gathered last week in Washington, D.C. to commemorate the 70th anniversary of the Korean Armistice Agreement, the Truce for Peace. They were also uh, uh, there to support the passing of House Bill 1369, also known as the Peace on the Korean Peninsula Act. The act calls to review travel restrictions to North Korea and to formally end the Korean War. Hawaii's Christine Ahn, Nobel Peace Peace Summit Prize winner, leader of Korean Peace Now and Women Cross DMZ, is at the front of the swell of those who want congressional action on the proposed act. She was at the gatherings, marches, and conferences last week. Here's some highlights. Is this a peace movement of military leaders, decorated veterans, of human rights lawyers, of young politicians, of faith-based leaders, of authors, of artists? Are we a powerful Peace movement. Yes. Yes. Are we going to end the Korean War? Yes. Everybody must remember the false missile alert in 2018 when we thought that North Korea had shot a long-range missile that was headed towards Hawaii. And why this matters to us is that because the unresolved Korean conflict, which is now in its 70th anniversary of a ceasefire, that is just a temporary uh, agreement that is about putting down your weapons, but they promise to 
sign a peace agreement and they haven't now 70 years and so what we're saying is we want peace we don't want the threat of nuclear war and the best way to do so is actually through diplomacy and negotiating a peace settlement you know i think what we see is that the militarization that's caused by the unresolved Korean conflict is not just impacting the Korean Peninsula, but it actually has far-reaching consequences to all the other places where the U.S. military is, including right here at home where Oahu's water is threatened because of the Red Hill contamination. And that jet fuel is not just you know, being sent to Asia, it's actually being used to fuel the jets, the fighter jets that will go and bomb our families, our Ohana, whether it's on the Korean Peninsula, in China. And so we have to make the connection that for us to have peace and a, a decent life here in Hawaii is so much connected to there being peace on the Korean Peninsula. Hi, my name is Joseph Hahn, and I'm the author of Nuclear Family, which is a story about the division of the Korean Peninsula and the reunion of family members across the living and the dead. And it's really important for me to be here in D.C. as we push for peace, not only on the Korean Peninsula, but across the world as U.S. militarism impacts us all, and particularly those surrounding communities most affected by the deployment of troops and also the presence of U.S. military training and exercises. Ten years ago, on the 60th anniversary of the Korean armistice, only two members of Congress wanted a peace treaty between North and South Korea, but the movement appears to be gaining political momentum. This year, the Peace on the Korean Peninsula Act was reintroduced and has support from 33 co-sponsors. In March 2023, the act was referred to the House Committee on Foreign Affairs. Those who oppose the act say Kim Jong-un has proven to be an unreliable negotiator and heads a regime that cannot be trusted. And a peace treaty without concrete guarantee of peaceful North Korean behavior will not lead to real peace. An early supporter of the act is California Congresswoman Barbara Lee, whose father fought in the Korean War. In 2001, Lee was the sole member of Congress to vote against giving President Bush authority to use armed forces to punish those responsible for the 9-11 attacks. Uh, young people like Jun Shin of Honolulu are getting involved in support for the bill for reasons that many locals understand. My name is Jun Shin. Uh, I've been born and raised in Oahu, Hawaii my whole life. I currently live in the, the Alamoana Kaka'ako area. A lot of people would remember the nuclear incident. I guess finding an alternative route that doesn't involve like the existential like crisis and existential end of life here in Hawaii and, and the rest of the world. So the more we spend on like capability to cause harm to others, the less we spend on like education and housing and healthcare. Like we could use, invest that back into all the things that Hawaii needs so that like, you know, like Hawaii's working people can actually like not have to like, you know, constantly have to struggle to like put food on the table and pay the bills. Supporters of all ages came from across the country. 
My name is Iris Kim, I'm 26 years old, and the 70th anniversary of the Korean War armistice is relevant to me because as a writer and journalist, it's really difficult to see um, narratives about myself and my family history and Korean history within mainstream US narratives. And so part of the reason why I'm here is to, I feel like, correct that overlooked history and also remind people that it's not the forgotten war, which is what the Korean War is referred to in, in US history books. And it's very much real for the Korean diaspora. And it's the reason why the Korean diaspora exists as well. Yeah, I know that um, getting people to care about the Korean War and peace on the Korean Peninsula can be a, a long effort that takes a lot of, of people and years. but. For this week in Korea Peace Action Week and the mobilization, one goal would be even to just increase awareness about the fact that the Korean War never ended and that it's the longest running conflict in American history and just educate not just ourselves, but also politicians on the Hill and the Biden administration and make it clear to them that this is something that is very important to Korean Americans all over the United States. My name is Sally Jones. I am from Staten Island, New York. I've lived there for the last, I don't know, 40, almost 44 years. And I am here in Washington, D.C. because I am a con converted to caring about Korean peace. Uh, I am a peace activist. I helped start a peace action chapter in Staten Island back uh, in 2002, uh, I really think that war is needs to be abolished. And this is the longest war. You know, it ended, uh, the fighting ended 70 years ago, but not with a peace treaty. It uh, ended with an armistice. And the more you learn about the Korean War, the more you see how it is connected with so many other things in foreign policy in the United States. And it is a learning experience for me. I am not Korean American. I am Canadian American. But I do, I, I care about the world. I want to see war end and I want to see this war end. Also on hand in our nation's capital were former members of the military. Well, my name is Ann Wright. I'm a retired U.S. Army colonel. I also was a U.S. diplomat and resigned in opposition to a war. I've lived in Honolulu ever since. I resigned from the government 20 years ago. Uh, and I believe that peace on the Korean Peninsula is good for all of us in Hawaii, particularly with the huge military presence we have. I mean, if there is a war, uh, Hawaii is a, is a logical target. So we need to reduce the tensions all over Asia and the Pacific so that it will never be a war. And certainly the war, a potential war on the Korean Peninsula would be nuclear. A war with China would be nuclear. So we, as people of Hawaii, need to really work hard to make sure our federal government starts getting peace agreements, peace, peace agreements, peace accords, call them whatever you need, but we need to have less tension on the Korean Peninsula for the, for the North Koreans to say, okay, we're not going to be threatened, so we don't need all this armament. Do you think that this is a realistic proposition? There's a lot of 
voices saying this isn't really possible to have peace on the peninsula. Well, as a person that's been in the U.S. military and also as a U.S. diplomat, I certainly believe that dialogue, negotiations, things like that are much better than confrontations. And it is possible for us to have peace if both sides will work slowly, slowly together so that they trust each other and so that you can have a reduction of tensions and then finally sign some sort of an accord that gives each side the confidence that neither one are going to attack each other. And why do you think that this has gone on so long? Well, it's gone on so long because there's profit in it. I mean, we look at our, our own military industrial complex, all the big corporations that make tons of money on confrontations and war. So that group of people has had an inordinate uh, effect on successive uh, U.S. presidential administrations. They give a lot of money to, to politicians, and they want, uh, they want to keep in business. They want bigger and bigger business, and the only way they can do that is to have increased military budgets and the potential for conflict. And we're saying, let's reduce the potential for conflict uh, they won't make as much money, and that's fine with me because they're making a killing anyway. So <laughs> it's time for us as citizens of Hawaii to really tell our members of Congress that we want them to be voting for lower military budgets and to work for peace by sponsoring resolutions in both the House and the Senate that we, the people of Hawaii, want peace on the Korean Peninsula. That was uh, Anne Wright talking with HPR Stephanie Hahn in Washington, D.C. last week. And Lieutenant General Dan Leaf, former deputy and acting commander of the U.S. Pacific Command, wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times. He explains why he supports peace in the peninsula after serving in Korea. I'm here because I believe that a peace treaty replacing the Korean War armistice is a necessary first step, even zero step, to prevent nuclear conflict with North Korea, and set the conditions for eventual denuclearization and improvement of the human rights and human condition of North Korean citizens. Is this something that's potentially a fantasy? A lot of people would be in disagreement saying, you know, we gotta watch out for North Korea. Can we trust this? Can we have a peace treaty? Well, if we can't trust them, why would we sit idly by, or not idly by, but trying to deter without effect while they have nuclear weapons? So no, it's not a fantasy. It's a hard reality. Peace is hard. It needs to be a national priority. When I'm asked, how would we make peace with North Korea by people in government, I say, well, that's your job. Well, it should be their job, but it will be a fantasy until the United States government establishes responsibility in some organization for the, me the mechanics of making peace. We need a team of lawyers that's looking how we transition from an armistice to a peace agreement, normalize boundaries, and establish some form of diplomatic interaction. Now, that sounds pretty ethereal maybe to folks in Hawaii, but this matters to us because the risk of nuclear war is real. And the suffering of the North Korean people is equally real. So I'm here because I can't stand to sit idly by while we're taking that kind of risk or allowing that kind of suffering. 
any final words about how maybe people can get involved in this? Well, as always, write to your elected representatives, go to their town halls, send them an email, and say, you want a, an active pursuit of peace with North Korea without compromising our national security. There are some 50,000 Koreans living in Hawaii. We're considered a majority minority state. Many in our population have ancestral or current family ties to Asia. A conflict on the P Korean Peninsula will affect the Pacific region. So far, Hawaii's congressional delegation has not yet taken a position on the peace uh, on the K Korean Peninsula Act. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. The solar system's largest volcano is on Mars, and it bears some similarities to a volcano on the Big Island. All the details are in your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet. And as usual, we are thrilled to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips to guide us, and we welcome him back right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have this week? Hey, Dave, good to be here. So this week, stargazers, look out for Mars in the west after sunset. Also, keep an eye out for Saturn rising in the east at around 8 p.m. The moon this week will be passing through its full phase, and so sky brightness will make spotting those faint objects in the skies very challenging indeed. Volcano is a big thing in Hawaii, big around the world, really. The biggest volcano in the solar system, apparently, however, is in your news report today. That's it, yeah. It's the Red Planet this week. Planetary scientists using data from NASA's Mars Global Surveyor spacecraft have been able to study Mars's largest mountain, Olympus Mons, an enormous shield volcano, the largest in the solar system, in fact. Studies of this vast mountain's geology indicate that in a distant past, it was a massive volcanic island with lava flows that headed downhill into what was once a Martian ocean. This may not come as too much of a surprise given that when you look at an image of Olympus Mons, it looks very much like a Martian version of the Big Island of Hawaii. Yeah, I was going to say, Olympus Mons looks like a supersized Mount Loa. Yeah, and you'd be right. Olympus Mons is a shield volcano, exactly the same type of volcano as Mount Loa. The calderas at the summit even resemble one another. <laughs> so it would make sense that at some point in the past, eruptions from Olympus Mons did indeed flow down its great slopes. They just don't have a visitor center, right? Unfortunately not. <laughs> but if you look at the base of the volcano, one thing they do have is something that looks like our uh, cliff formations we've got here in Hawaii. Yeah, this is another similarity. High-res imagery of the Martian surface shows us where the shores of this Martian ocean perhaps would have been, right at the base of the volcano. And what do you think it was like back then, Chris? What were the hotels like? What was the shopping like? <laughs> well, about three billion years ago, there probably wasn't much there. And that's when we think Olympus Mons actually formed, somewhere in that time period. A period in Martian history known as the Hesperian period. Evidence from spacecraft and Martian rovers, such as Opportunity and Perseverance, have shown that Mars was much wetter and warmer in ancient times. And I'm sure all of this really asks the question, what do you think happened to Mars to turn it from this gorgeous, lovely place where you could take a dip in the sea and then mellow out for a while, chat with folks? into the desolate kind of place it is today. Well, that's one of the big mysteries about Mars. At some point, it became very different.
into the warm, wet planet it used to be. It is hoped that our fleet of orbiting spacecraft and rovers on the surface will give us some clues to this ancient mystery and perhaps even allow us to understand our own planet's evolution in the process. We know who will bring us updates on that, and that'll be you, Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and you can catch Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the West Hawaii Exploration Academy Public Charter School. Committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design, ferrarochoi.com. Now it's time to bring the Backyard Quiz answer into port. We asked you to give us the name of the vessel that shipping company Matson used in its first ever delivery to the Hawaiian Islands. Matson kicked off its operations in 1882 when the company's founder, William Matson, captained a merchant ship from San Francisco to Hilo. The first delivery was made possible through venture funding from wealthy Hawaii industrialist Klaus Spreckels. William Matson struck up a friendship with Spreckles after crewing aboard his family yacht. He provided Matson the cash, while Matson brought the nautical skill, and the Matson Navigational Company was born. That company has shaped the modern face of Hawaii, popularizing tourist travel to the islands in the days before air travel and contributing to the transfer of a significant amount of goods between islands and elsewhere. And it all began with that first delivery of supplies aboard the three-masted schooner the Emma Claudina, which was the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. I didn't know it, but Yvonne from Kailua did. She's our winner. If you have an idea for a quiz, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. That does it for us today. Tomorrow, an update on a complaint about a billboard in Waikiki that we've reported on. Do you have an idea uh, to share with us? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? Find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or on our website. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. <laughs>